Hey everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. I'm your host, Phil, and this is a bit of a different episode, mainly because it was not planned. So what happened was myself and Lisa Hunt, who is another trainer at High Five and you've heard in other episodes. So we were having one of our regular daily check-ins and we were reflecting on two conference workshops that we just led. And I realized, wow, this is really great stuff. I wish other people could hear it. And then I remembered. So I pressed record. This episode is the result, talking about activity adaptation and being intentionally vague. So if you are finding episodes like this valuable and you want to support us, you can do so by going to Apple Podcasts and writing us a review. That really, really does help us out. And as well, tell all of your friends who you think this would be valuable to to listen to the podcast and how they can do it. Thank you once again for being here, listening to me ramble on and enjoy. I was in a workshop we were talking about COVID protocols and adapting, making adaptations to Lowe's. And a question got asked, like, if you change the element so much, is it still the element? Like, if you add in all these, like, protocols and changes and adaptations to something like, let's say, the spider's web, is it still a spider's web if you've gone through all those changes? And so I brought up the idea that, and this is something that Ryan McCormick shared with me at one point, this idea of simplifying the frog, which essentially means, like, what's the easiest way? You take a picture of a frog, and how you can you make it easier and easier and easier, an easier way to draw it, and it still be seen as a frog? So I brought this up of, like, simplify the frog, and then you just build it back up again, and it might look like a different frog, but it's still a frog, right? So the element is still an element. It just might not be the way you saw it. And then I also added... As adventure practitioners, I think that sometimes the, the mistake that people make is that the way that they got taught something is the way they see it, and it's the only way they ever see it. So let's say a spider's web, you get lifted through the, the holes on the spider's web, and from that point on, you just assume in your brain that the spider's web is a lifting activity. So you only ever run it that way, and when you realize you can't do a lift with a group or whatever, then you can't do the spider's web. And it sort of makes that activity useless to you. And I think that that's the same with, as people are adapting their low elements to COVID protocols and stuff like that, there's that concern that, oh, I I won't be able to do this. It won't be the same anymore. But the thing I was trying to remind people in that workshop is when you're bringing people, participants on, they may not have ever, ever, ever seen a spider's web. We're putting all this assumed, like this is the way this activity is into our into our heads. They have never seen it. They're not going to look at that spider web and go, oh yeah, that's definitely a lifting. I'm going to be lifted through some of those holes. I can already see it. They don't know that. They just see bungee cord and rope looking like a spider web. They have no idea. So you can go up to that activity and frame it in any way you want to, and it will be whatever it is. And this also relates to, and I'm going to give a shout out to Mark Collard and his interactive games and activities group on Facebook. He put out a comment about the trustful, but he wasn't referencing in the use of the trustful, but more like naming the names of activities sort of give people a lead into what the aim is, like the outcome. So a trustful with the word trust in it might put into people's brains the idea that we're going to be doing something trust related. And then I commented, I don't bring up names when I'm facilitating with groups. If I'm training, I'll say this is that because it helps catalog and create an agenda and I will use the names in my agenda. But I don't say stuff like, okay, we're about to play this activity and then name it. 
I just say, hey, we, we're about to play something. You want to play something with me? I remember as well, myself and Liz Moore did a workshop at a symposium called Being Intentionally Vague. I think that was what it was called. Maybe it wasn't called that, but it was around that idea of it being being intentionally vague in your facilitation. Adventure is adventurous and you don't need to give your hand away right at the start. It would be like telling people in a moment, I'm going to make a card disappear. And then you do all the preamble and then make the card disappear. People knew it was coming, so they weren't as shocked. If you just make it disappear, then it's very surprising. They had no idea. And I think that's the the adventure piece coming to play with uh, low elements and other activities. So anyway, I'm sort of rambling, but I know that Lisa, you were relating as we were talking about this. I was, because I think I would add another layer to what you've already said, which I agree with all of those comments around, like how we name things, how that naming things can sort of give people an impression about what's going to happen intentionally or not. Another way that I look at that is how we categorize activities either on our own, like when we make activity lists or in a book or in a workshop where we're saying, okay, so today's activities, the warm-ups were this, the And so in the way that you and I were talking about this before we hit record was I did a workshop last night that was focused only on partner activities. And I told the group at the beginning that I'm not going to define the activity types further. I wanted folks to do that for themselves and, and thinking about how limiting. So for example, let's think of a, an easy to explain partner activity, let's say human camera right, which some folks use it. One person has their eyes closed, one person doesn't. They're leading them around to certain places and the eyes closed person is opening their eyes just for a second to capture some images. I could say, okay, human camera is a reflection tool. So then what that would limit a person is to think, well, this could also be a sense of place tool. It could also be just for fun. It could be to sort of get used to navigating a space with eyesight limited. So there's all different ways that I think that we as facilitators unintentionally limit people's creativity. And then I also recognize on the other side of that coin that some folks really do benefit from having a category. So I'm not anti-category. It's more like I want folks to own that for themselves. So I'm going to learn human camera without restriction and I'm going to choose to think about it this way. Great. But I'm, I don't want it as a facilitator. I don't want to influence that too much for you. There are some categories that you can't really get away from, right? Like this is an active game. Great. That's a fine category because it's going to be active no matter what. But it, that's different from saying this is a, a debriefing tool. This is a connecting tool. This is an energizer. Like I don't think that those categories are untranscendable. We've experienced this and throughout the last year about having to adapt and change some of the stuff and to go on to virtual and does this work virtual or does this work in person? And, you know, I ran a workshop for ACA last week on activities that work both virtually and with some change in person. So I could run them virtually and then they could also be in person. Yeah, we're limiting ourselves sometimes based on the past, based on the way everything has been done before that we can't do a lot of stuff. Like I've referenced before, like this grieving process of early on, like going through my list of activities and realizing I couldn't do half of them. And that's upsetting. And the same with Lowe's. I referenced yesterday the benefit and I referenced, and I will mention this as a tip to all people listening, all the listeners who have a challenge course or or low elements course or highs with your staff before you ever run 
programming. Just go and play and experiment. I think that the day that we as a staff went out to our course and just took rope and PVC pipe and other props and crutches and all these things and just played and can we still use this activity? Let's go over. We can't, but is there any other way to use this tool, this prop, this element? And we were creative and it was super fun. And I think that that made me feel so much better and it took away some of the limitations I'd put in my own head that there is no way that I can do a lot of this. And I also talked about that when you're with your groups, when you're with your participants, there's there, there needs to be some level of authenticity that you aren't going to bring groups to your programs now and you're not going to be the content experts around these new activities. You're almost like you're going back to how you were when you first started and there's mm. some like scary newness to that and you don't and you were so dialed at your previous agenda, you don't want to be like undialed or whatever and you're like, I, I'm, I mean, me nervous. With those gathering again workshops, now granted we framed them in a way that we were trying some stuff, but there's mm-hmm. that, that's the adventure model of like allowing people to experience. I was fortunate to attend a Carl Ronke workshop, and I know this was a technique that he would use very often, where he would have done an activity hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. But when he was with you with your group, he would say that this was the first time he was going to try something, or would or invite yeah. the group like would you like to try this with me? I'm not sure if this would work. That phrasing creates buy and creates like an idea. Like there's that FOMO piece to a degree as well. Like the fear of missing out on being like, oh my God, I'm going to try something and make something new. And you'll call back. And I was the first person who ever did so-and-so. I don't know. There's, there's more excitement around it, but there's also that, what we said, like the limiting factor of this is how it was done in the past. This is how I've categorized things in the, in the past. I'm not sure they would work on all these ways. And I don't think that's the case. I'm, I'm running into that more and more often. This episode is supported by Atomic Climbing Holds. With orders that ship in one to five business days and having removable climbing holds that are really ideal for a challenge course program, allowing you to adapt and change the routes that you might have on your traverse walls and your climbing walls, then I highly recommend you checking out Atomic Climbing Holds. You can find them at their website, atomicclimbingholds.com, as well as see all the wonderful climbing holds that they make on their Instagram, at Atomic Climbing Holds. And Atomic is with a K, A-T-O-M-I-K, Climbing Holds. I think it, there is a difference, and we've talked about this before, between activities that don't involve sort of specialty training and activities that do. So one way to, to say that is non-challenge course versus challenge course. My experience as a – I have to sort of take some responsibility as a trainer for some of those limiting beliefs. So if I train you on how to use your wild woozy – I have certain things I need to cover. I need to cover the SOP, the LOP, spotting, all that stuff. And I think unless I'm really intentional, I can create this idea that whatever the metaphor is or the task or the challenge is part of all of that safety stuff, right? And yet, really, it's more if you understand that how the activity works, where are the potential risks, what the SOP is, there's actually quite a lot of wiggle room within that to play and to operate and use it safely. I do feel like my comfort with playing with Lowe's is also a, a correlated to my 
years of sort of opportunity of playing around, making mistakes, getting good supervision, all that stuff. For someone who might be brand new, it makes complete sense that it's like, this is the way I was trained. So it's like, how do we tease apart what the standard operating procedure is from everything else? Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we yeah. as trainers can help model uh, intentionally. Yeah, so I would say like a call to trainers who are listening to this that, you know, if you're training, give the space for creativity maybe and give the space for uh, a fluctuation on the local operating procedures or the standard operating procedures that still take into effect the need for safety and all of those factors, but can allow people to feel like they can be more creative. Even before uh, the pandemic, I was loving... I was going on like a big tear of like on low elements of teaching all the different ways to use it. I would spend half a day on a whale watch or like on that spider's web and show like, this is how you can imagine this. Imagine the whale watch as if it's a, a board game. Like suddenly you have the ability to look at it in a new way and now you can play it in lots and lots of different ways. Yeah, you're limited sometimes in the training options to be able to, I've got, I'm just going to teach the SOPs. I'm not going to have the opportunity to teach it. But I would say as long as you're abiding by making sure people are staying safe, whatever those requirements are for the elements you're working with, the method of the actual element itself, the activity beyond the spotting or all those things, like how do you get across from A to B or what are you going to do here? I, I'm excited that for people to be more creative and and uh, it will only help the rest of the industry if we can like take some of the things we've already built and say, all right, I can't do them this way. How else can I do them? Totally. And I think that one thing that supports that kind of thinking is when we can emphasize spotting as a shared responsibility, not just as a responsibility for people on the ground. It's been a long time since I've over a year since I've thought about these things specifically, but I, you know, certainly the way I was trained in, you know, the nineties and it certainly shifted in the last several years, but it's like spotting is something that you do on the ground and that you're there to make sure that there isn't a ground fall from the climber. But at, in our training environment with our team, Phil, we emphasize self-spotting as much as we emphasize spotting from the ground. So I think when that, even that kind of simple framing around practicing self-spotting, mm-hmm. practicing falling effectively, I think even that kind of language opens up. So like, hey, if we all know how to do effective self-spotting, what can we not do on the full house? I mean, that was my thing last summer. I was like, we're going to do everything on the full house, including twirly bullseye and hunker house and all this stuff. And it was mm-hmm. so fun because we like, you just you understand how spotting works and how that can be universally applied. Yeah. I'm just going to throw in this uh, last thing, maybe an activity hunker houser. You just mentioned that activity. I think that that is a good one for uh, balance practice. Recently I r- looked into the name cause I was like, I have no idea. I've been saying that I have no idea what this means. So I do know now, so I can add this in for people who are like taking notes or whatever. Uh, hunker is get down, squat down or get low, right? Bended in a hunkered position. And then Hauser is a thick diameter rope or steel that would be used to haul in ships and tie them to a dock. So that was that combination of those two things was where this name of this activity comes from. Talking about it in terms of a sequence, starting on the ground on a spot marker. So there essentially is two people, we've got a length of rope between you, and you have to be stationary in the same position. So you put a spot marker down one person's one and six foot away is another person. And it's look, it looks like a tug of war, letting go of the rope or you're pulling on the rope and you're trying to make your partner take a step off their spot marker. Now you can 
add this to like a balance practice sequence by then having people one leg in the air or heel to toe or a wider stance or an athletic stance you can get into those practices i i really enjoy it too where it's back to back so you're like turn your back to your person and see if you can still do it and then bring it up onto a, a full house beam like that could be the good progression and then you add a little bit of height and balance to it that's a great way to prep your participants for balance and then that can lead to self-spotting we were talking about self-spotting for a couple of years. I think now it's even more important than we're focusing on it yeah. since our ability to be able to get close and spot is different. I can't play palm off, exactly. And it's uh, that was one of my favorites. And this is sort of like a combination of those two. You know, once again, I think that this has created an activity. Now, I'll probably use that all the time. And I love it. And I didn't use it that much. And so anyway... I used to use it just as a, like, uh, after lunch, like I feel it's one of the few places where I feel super competitive and I typically don't win, but I enjoy trying. And now it's like, oh, it's it's like, it actually has a purpose and which it did all along. I just didn't see it. Anyway, that was just, uh, decided to jump on and record. This is an impromptu recording because of, uh, we were having that discussion. I thought it would be pretty cool. Anyway, uh, thanks everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for giving Article Pass a guy. <laughs>
who go on to our Instagram at vertical playpen send a DM say I heard the end I made it to the end that's a good phrase let's do that say I made it to the end the first five people I will direct message you back and you can get yourself a pin and one of our stickers I'll mail that mail those out to you US listeners only I do apologize shipping is really expensive for international all right anyway thanks everyone Thanks for listening. Share, rate, review, all of that cool stuff. Love it. Thank you so much. Bye.